0: there and welcome back to Future Cities. I'm your host, Stephen Elser. Today's episode is the second in a three-part series brought to you by Dr. Mike Chester, a professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment at Arizona State University. In December of 2020, Dr. Chester moderated the Infrastructure and the Anthropocene Forum, which focused on the future of infrastructure from a variety of different perspectives. The conversations from those forums were recorded and have been repurposed for our podcast. Without further ado, I'll hand it over to Mike. Enjoy. Welcome listeners, I'm Mikhail Chester and today I'm pleased to introduce Professor Mary Yule Bean of Texas Christian University. It's widely recognized that infrastructure are central to societal goals, that changes to infrastructure and how we use them can have profound impacts on people and economies. It's critical to recognize that infrastructure are the hammer at the end of the arm, and the arm is governance. How are infrastructure governed and why? At the dawn of the Anthropocene, there appears to be a need to reevaluate how infrastructure are governed for the major challenges of the future. For example, sustainability and resilience. In a future characterized by greater complexity, it's necessary to ask whether the governance goals and structures of the past are appropriate for the future. Leadership is an essential part of governance. Today I'm pleased to be speaking with Professor Mary Yule-Bean on the topic of complexity leadership for infrastructure. We discuss what complexity leadership theory is, how she developed the work, and how it translates to infrastructure systems. Reassessing what types of leadership infrastructure agencies are capable of appears critical to their ability to innovate and handle disruption in the future. Here's my talk with Mary. Enjoy. I am happy today to be talking to Professor Mary Yule bean of Texas Christian University at the Business School. And um, I think the best way to tell you about Mary is to give you a little bit of context as to uh, how I uh, found her and her work. So, uh, as many of you know, I was on sabbatical last year. and. Um, you know, as uh, we kind of referred to yesterday in the conversation with Thad, um, I became interested in this question of uh, how do we govern infrastructure? And, uh, you know, after uh, doing some work on the topic, I think that the question was less about governance and more about, you know, the bureaucratic structures and whether those bureaucratic structures are uh, appropriate for the problems that we face today. So I felt that at the time we, um, and and still know very little as, uh, particularly as uh, engineers, but I would say more broadly as infrastructure people, um, how we govern infrastructure, um, how we structure our governance organizations as bureaucracies, why they're governed that way, and what that form of of governance or, or bureaucracy means, in terms of what the organization is and is not capable of doing, so uh, I started digging into this topic, and um, you know I, the, the way that I you know like to do that is by writing a paper because that's my way of sort of self-motivating. And if I just and tasking myself with reading uh, for fun on some of these heavier topics, I generally won't do it. So I say to myself, all right, I'm going to write a paper. Uh, I'm going to lead a paper, sort of thing. So um, after doing my lit review, there were sort of two key uh, People that I found, Um, the first was um, a gentleman named uh, Mintzberg at uh, McGill University, who in 1978-79, around that time, uh, early uh, early career faculty member, um, wrote about the structure, uh, the basic structure of um, organizations, and he was very much writing this from a business perspective. Um, But it was uh, the sort of first and my understanding is uh, remains one of the only uh, attempts to define like the molecules of an organization and how uh, when those molecules are organized in certain ways, the organization um, is or is not able to do certain things. So uh, I found that to be uh, a really useful way of me to, for me to, to sort of break down what an organization or how an organization is structured and what that means. The other person, as you might have guessed already, is uh, Mary here. And uh, I came across her work that um, Mary, I think, was from uh, 12 years ago at this point on uh, your earlier work on complexity leadership. Um, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, was, was sort of out of your PhD or Or shortly after your PhD and um, I was reading uh, a lot of work uh, on on governance of uh, public service organizations and um, just somehow happened to come across uh, Mary's work on uh, complexity leadership which does not have anything to do with uh, infrastructure uh, nor do I believe again correct me if I'm wrong anything to do with uh, public service organizations so Uh, Finally, I got the courage to um, send a blind email and say, Hey, uh, I like what you've written. Um, Can I talk to you on the phone and we had a a nice chat and, um, uh, you know, we were excited to talk to each other some more. So, um, I said, Okay, let's, uh, what I would really like to do is get you in front of a broader group. And uh, this is it, this is how uh, it came to be so. Mary and I have not had all that many conversations around uh, complexity leadership um, as it relates to complexity leadership for business or complexity leadership for infrastructure. So uh, I think part of the conversation here today will be finding some common ground on um, how her complexity leadership theory can be applied to infrastructure. So I haven't really said anything about uh, complexity leadership theory or complexity leadership. Um, I'm gonna leave that to Mary. With that, Mary, welcome. And uh, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, it's great to be here. I I have to say, um, you said you sent me a blind blind email, but I was really excited to get it because as I told you, I love doing interdisciplinary work. Um, The complexity work has really allowed me and the leadership work has allowed me to work with people across different fields and perspectives. And I always find it very enriching. And one of the enrichments I got was learning a new word, which is Anthropocene. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. I still know exactly what it is, but I get the idea of it. So I see we've we've shifted it to infrastructure now, and I'm excited about talking about this. And I will say um, the work has had some application in the public sector. So it applies, the work that I do as an organization, so it can be any kind of organization. We've primarily focused on business organizations, but I have worked with different groups and different areas like military and some of the public sector. So I'll know about the, the PSOs, but I won't know as much about the, the kinds of things that you're doing.
0: Um. Yes, and I think, uh, as you and I have discussed, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how uh, infrastructure might be the same or might be different from how we think about other types of organizations, right? And I think that's an important aspect for us to, uh, for all of us to put our heads together on. Yes. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the Anthropocene is an interesting word. I... um, uh it it is very uh well defined there's a whole body of anthropocene you know scientists there are journals focused on uh the anthropocene um some that have anthropocene in the name some that don't like elementa uh science for the anthropocene and there's uh what's interesting is you know scene is generally you know a geologic term right but here it's become sort of a social term in in some ways or human evolution type term. so you know it takes on a very different meaning um so uh Mary, you're a Texas Christian and, uh, you know, let me let me start this off trying to get a sense of, uh, you know, kind of who you are, how you got to where you are. So, um, you know, I I sort of uh, started reading your work from, you know, around, I think it was 2008, uh, one of your early papers on complexity leadership theory. Um, you know, how did you get into, I guess, complexity mm-hmm. um, and ultimately, you know, into kind of a business school, a faculty member and so on? Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. So I, it was interesting when you said this complexity work came out of my PhD because actually it didn't. I'm a lot older than that, <laughs> unfortunately. So I um, I want to give you a quick background on it. So I started in the PhD program. I was recruited in by my undergraduate professor. I had not expected to do a PhD. I thought I was going to go out and change the world and global business. And it was the eighties and everybody was saying the global globalization is coming. And I was so excited about it. So I get ready to go out and get a job. And I say to the world, here I am, I want a job. And they're saying, we don't have any jobs like that. So my PhD advisor said, no, 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 I want you to come into the PhD program. So that's actually how I got into leadership is I basically then just joined and um, worked on his theory, which was leader member exchange theory. And that's about how managers and subordinates engage together. And the fundamental idea of it is that you have more effective leadership if you have a more effective relationship. So we focused a lot on the dyad, the, the leader and the follower. So I'm trained by an IO psychologist, which is probably the most micro you can get in the field. And I think I'm not really very micro. So I think my whole life has been then expanding out to the macro But I have the, the good fortune of having this solid foundation in micro first. So that got me into very much into relationships and thinking about interpersonal relationships, which are based on social exchange. So as I was doing that, I was understanding that leaders, the world that they operate in is much more than this dyadic relationship, um, the manager and the subordinate. And, And in our field, we even do that very individually. So it's like a manager with an employee. That's how we approach it. And each employee is then different. And that's the basic unit. And I saw that wasn't what was how leaders operated in the world. So I was looking in the 90s as I was an assistant professor to try to find something that would help me understand more the reality and the context of what leaders operate in. And in the early 2000s, that's when I got introduced to Russ Marion, who did, wrote a book on complexity, and he pulled it from the physical and biological sciences. And it was a great collaboration because, like I said, I like to do interdisciplinary work. Russ is, um, he was a a math and science teacher. He works in the education college. He's a professor. He was a principal for a while. So he came from an educational background. He was trained more macro. So again, I'm business school. I was trained micro. So as we would talk together, he he brought a science background. I brought a very heavy psych and social psych background. And as we talked, it would just be such rich interaction and conversation. So that was how I got into complexity. Um, We wrote our first paper. I was pretty excited about it, thinking that this had the opportunity to really change the world because, or change my world of how I look at leadership because I knew that the world was complex. And we sit here in 2020 and we can say, yes, the world is very complex. We see it now, we're living it and people don't have questions about that aspect of it now, that whether it's gonna be complex or not. not. Now the questions are, how do we actually lead in that situation?
0: Um, so can you can you expand on that just a little bit? So the world is now complex. You've said this to me before, and and you know you've said things like and correct me if I'm wrong. um you know businesses have figured out or are starting to figure out how to deal with this complexity. So when you use that term, um, what in general are you sort of thinking about? and and when you kind of say that about businesses, what are you referring to?
1: So again, this comes from the physical and biological sciences. so it's a very different meaning of what complexity is from how other people use it. So a lot of people have historically used the word complexity to mean complicated. Yeah. So the way we describe it, and I borrowed this from Paul Cillier in, in Africa. Um, he, he's from South Africa and he was the first I heard to use this and I think it makes a lot of sense. So there's um, there are two things, there's complexity and complicated. So complexity is mayonnaise, whereas complicated is a jumbo jet and engineers will get this. So a jumbo jet is complicated in that it has a lot of parts, So and they're all intricately related and interrelated, but when the parts come together, they don't physically change each other. So you, it's decomposable back. So you can build a jumbo jet, but then you can decompose it back to the original parts. So the rubber never changes, the glass, the steel, those components stay the same. But mayonnaise is complex, and the reason is because it has rich interconnectivity. So in the interactions, when you bring the components together, they fundamentally change each other. They transform the other part and that's called a phase transition. And when a complexity event occurs, it means that it's not decomposable back. Once it it has happened, a complexity event, there's no going back to the former state. And so in, in terms of thinking about the world and how this works in our environment, complexity is characterized by rich interconnectivity. So the interconnectivity is those connections that we talk about, which is why I like this theory because I was so into relational and relationality. So that made sense to me. But the richness is that it's the non-linear interactive dynamics of it. So that when the components come again in an unpredictable way, they can can transform. So um, as we were looking at this in 2001, we saw the world was becoming more complex. Why? Because it's more interconnected. So the more we increase interconnectivity, the more we increase the potential or opportunity for richness to occur in the form of a phase transition or a complexity event. And that's precisely what has happened this year in a pandemic. I don't have to say to people anymore, we're in a complex world, they know it because they saw the rich interconnectivity of the pandemic and now all the transformation that has resulted in the fact that we are in a very different world now and we can't go back to what it was before.
0: Yep. So the world is, um, from your perspective, more complex than it was, say, 20, 40 years ago, because there are more of these interactions.
1: It's the interconnectivity that's increased it, yes.
0: Yeah, you know, we, um, uh, we've written about uh, and tried to frame the concept of complicated versus complex for infrastructure people. And uh, we have used the jumbo jet example. That's a great example of complicated, right? Because um, if you don't know the definitions of these words or you use them interchangeably, like many people do, um, you know, you say, okay, is a, is a jumbo jet complex? And everybody says, well, yeah. And you say, well, um, it has millions of parts, but to your point, those parts are decomposable and the emergent behavior, that is, when you push the throttle, the plane takes off is predictable, it's, it's knowable. Yeah. Um, Whereas uh, a city, for example, with um, you know, all of its infrastructure, its governance, its people, its, its you know, uh, various behaviors is um, arguably complex. Um, you hold a hurricane over New York City, for example, and you know that bad things will happen, but you don't know precisely what, when, where, and, and why. You, know, you, you can have some rough idea of what might happen, but you can't precisely predict. Uh, that emergent behavior is not totally clear.
1: That's exactly right, and the concept of emergence is core to this. So, for people to be able to understand complexity and how to do this kind of leadership, you have to bring what I call an emergence mindset, which means that you're you're thinking and understanding from that perspective.
0: Yeah, I always sort of evoke the Cinefin framework, C Y N E F I N, from Snowden at Microsoft, um, where he, you know, there, there's other, right there are other phases of of a, a system, right? Simple as well as uh, chaotic. Um, and I think for for us as infrastructure people, chaotic is also interesting to think about, particularly in the context of climate change, extreme events, yes. which many of the folks here do, right? And then there's this disorder in between, which is a shifting, you know, shifting between those different uh, regimes. So, uh, you know, that that's sort of the framework that I generally evoke. Yes. Um, so, uh, you've been studying for a while now, leadership in complexity and, you know, sort of what have you been focused on? What have you been discovering?
1: We've had so much that we've discovered and it's really exciting. And it's nice for me to be here at this stage of it, it be, right now, especially in what's happening in the world, because we understand it so much better. So we started off with a theoretical perspective of how, if we bring complexity and we think about complex organizations, which is what you just brought up. So a city would be a complex kind of situation, just by definition. I mean, there's so many moving parts in there influencing each other in such nonlinear and unpredictable ways, emergence events. So we started there and then we developed a theory of how this would work in an organization. That was the 2007 paper that you were referring to. And from there, we I, people were saying, well, write a book. And I said, I a book right now, I need to go out and study this so we went out i I was just not comfortable with doing more theorizing i wanted to really get messy in the world and see what was going on so we did massive data collection we had a really massive research program Um, unfortunately i wasn't able to publish all of that because as you know the publishing takes time so stopping and my, my goal was not to publish articles it was to understand the theory and the concepts and so We just drove ahead. We had a research practice partnership um, team that did a lot of data collection and a lot of coding. And as we did the coding of our qualitative data that we gathered from organizations and from leaders, um, we had a practitioner who has a PhD who was on that team. That's Michael Arena, my co-author. And as we would code from the theory side, and we're luckily he knew complexity, we were deep into the the academic words. He would say, well, here's how it works in practice, or here's how it works in the world, or this is what it means for people out actually doing this. So that was an unbelievable gift that we were given in this work. And as a result, we have very, very strong academic theory, but a very strong practice component that helps us to understand it. And then Michael got an opportunity to go be chief talent officer at General Motors. If you know anything about General Motors, and this is gonna be relevant to what we wanna talk about, um, what we know about them is that they died. They were an organization that literally died. They would have gone bankrupt, they were bailed out. So this is an important element because a key part that you and I have talked about Mike around complexity and the difference with bureaucracy or the kinds of systems you're dealing with is the motivating force underlying complexity is really the threat of, of survival. So just it comes from living systems, from nature, and what we know is that systems are adaptive when they have threats. Well, in this work, the one of the key findings was the most important threat was whether the organization will survive or not. And this is the big difference between the bureaucracy and the kinds of organizations and the infrastructure that you're dealing with and the business organizations. So when I say business organizations have adapted and they're better at this, it's because they have absolutely the threat of survival. We see this right now in the pandemic, which ones are going to survive. And it's not even necessarily the ones that were most unfit because the restaurant industry or chefs, I mean, they were well fit to their environment. They didn't do anything wrong, but the world shifted and it's now, creating true existential threats, some are dying. But in business organizations, the ones that have survived in this world and in this environment are the ones that have learned to be more adaptive. That was not an easy change for them. I have to tell you, I mean, it was a a lot of bureaucracy busting. It was a painful process, but it has really resulted in a better situation now for all of us, I think.
0: Is, so you and i you and i were talking about uh, like three weeks a month ago i forget what it was but but ever since so we, we got to this uh mutual aha moment i think it is where um you know basically i i've said like infrastructure pretty much don't have a threat of death right um whereas you know business for example many other industries do um and that has resonated with me over these past few weeks i've been thinking about like you know, what does that mean um, is that really the case right those sorts of things um, i've been thinking about for example uber and lyft that come in and um you know are, are they now providing service and are a significant disruptor that becomes a threat to survival of certain transportation agencies maybe maybe not i, I don't know right but uh this has sort of resonated with me and i think this is a key uh, characteristic of infrastructure that um, might dif- be a differentiator from, you know, the business world that, that you might focus on?
1: If we focus it on Uber and Lyft, what did they disrupt? They disrupted taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it was funny because when uber and Lyft started i was thinking oh i feel a bit sorry for these taxi drivers so I, tr- I would try to ride in a taxi because i knew that they were being threatened and disrupted and i i felt bad for them but i mean after a while you couldn't even get a taxi anymore it wasn't an option and now with the pandemic that's really probably killed the taxi industry so i don't know that we're going to see much of that back again at all so that's that's the way this kind of thing works it, the the disruptors come in and then the others need to be able to adapt.
0: Yeah, are there, from your work, examples of private business that don't have a threat of uh, death? Like the bank, the big banks are still, like too big to fail.
1: The interesting thing is the banks, which you would think. I mean, if we had to predict in the back in two thousand and one, which industry wouldn't change, we would think it would be banks. But oh my gosh, if you know anything about banking they are completely transforming, completely transforming. So with digitization and commoditization. Um, banks are no longer what they used to be. So I'll give you the example of that. Um, my son is 25 years old. He's never stepped foot in a bank. In fact, my husband had said to him, mail me a letter. He said, how do you do that? I don't know how to mail a letter. My husband say you go to a post office, you get a stamp, you put it in an envelope, and you stick it in the mail. I mean, he he literally didn't know what that was, so um, he doesn't care about banks. He he doesn't think about banks, and in fact, he was banking with Charles Schwab. And my husband's trying to tell him, you know how you deal with the bank. So that these younger consumers don't care where they bank and they don't even care about a bank product. So that's the, it becoming a commodity. It's very difficult now for banks to differentiate themselves or even compete because when something becomes a commodity, then what value does the organization offer? So they're in tremendous disruption.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, from a, physical kind of infrastructure perspective, I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is that uh, your son now lives in a world where he is able to separate um, access to that service, um, what you might be calling the commodity, um, uh, separating the physical infrastructure, separating the physical infrastructure from the service itself, right? Like,
1: Right. Yes.
0: And, you know, I see that, you know, I I brought this story my three-year-old who's able to go over to our Google Home device and say, play me a song and can listen to, you know, any song in the history of humanity, you know, just like that. Whereas like, you know, I used to have to mow my grandparents lawn for two hours to get, you know, uh, 12 bucks to go buy a CD. Right. And even that, you know, is uh, a fairly modern story. Right. Some people might say different uh, audio mediums. Um, So, uh, When, you know, we use terms like um, governance, leadership, or, you know, we've used those terms, uh, bureaucracy, and, you know, those words to uh, people who are not in uh, the field, um, you know, may not have all that much meaning. So I'm wondering, can you start us off um, how we think about differentiating something like leadership from governance?
1: So this is where i told you we have some dialogue i would definitely like to hear what you think governance is but let me start here so let's talk about what leadership is that i think the first differentiation we have to make is leadership from management management professor so i get the management piece yeah so a lot of people think that leadership is just management. And I I say, no, that's not right. So in our work, we're now understanding that you have to have different mindsets you bring to this. And the first mindset is what we're calling a top-down mindset to shifting to a collective leadership mindset. So the top-down mindset is that a leader person in a position in an organization that's a formal role and that formal role has a, a leader a manager and a subordinate. So that's the the basic way that people think about leadership in business. And so what I say to them is yes, that's one form of leadership, that's managerial leadership. And then in in classic management theory, it's top down. So you have a, a bureaucracy. Well, what is that? That's a form of organizing. So bureaucracy is characterized by specification of offices, by formal reporting relationships, a hierarchy of authority and division of labor, which means that people do different kinds of things. And that's all coordinated in an organization that is supposed to be for efficiency and effectiveness. So this is the key thing. Bureaucracies are set up for efficiency and effectiveness. What they are not set up for is adaptability. So in classic org theory, We talk about that from the standpoint of organic versus mechanistic. That was the 60s and the Lawrence and Lorsch and Thompson stuff. Um, So there was organic is more like an organism and mechanistic is more like a machine. And we always knew that. And then we knew that organizations have different component parts of that. All right, so that's the first way of thinking about leadership from the management perspective and from bureaucracy. But what's been happening is that now we think about leadership more broadly, and this has been happening over decades, that we don't think about leadership just as the leader in the position, the manager, and we don't think about it as just a behavior that that manager does, but instead a process. So leadership that I like to talk, the way I like to describe it for people is I like to break things down to to the really most parsimonious definition we can give, which is why I say complexity is rich interconnectivity. Well, what I say is that leadership is using influence to create change. So it's a behavior, an influence behavior. Because it's influence, that means it involves power. Just And, and sometimes it's really diff, difficult to differentiate leadership from power. Um, it is the use of power, and power is actually the way that leadership gets done because it's influence. And then it's about change. So we we set this part. Part up to say that it's not just about efficiency and effectiveness in meeting results. That's more management. Leadership is more about change and adaptability. Sure. So, some people will disagree with that. But that's the, the way that I'm going to run with this. And then, if we want to look at governance, governance is governing systems that we have. And so, that's for particular kinds of organizations. And this is really where I want you to jump in. I think that's for more political or public sector kind of language, or in strategy, we talk about governance. So I have a a colleague in business who does strategy work, and he talks about it as the governance of the organization, but he's really getting more at the structural elements when he says that. He's talking about CEOs and how they interact with the board. So governance, I believe, is much more intended to get at the structural components of how organizations are set up.
0: Um, Yeah, so, and and by the way, some of the things that you just said evoke uh, the conversation that I had with Thad Miller yesterday uh, about infrastructure as knowledge enterprises, you know, this idea of, you know, how do you structure leadership, knowledge uh, generation, and so on to be able to uh, make sense of what is happening in the environment around you and change, you know, ultimately change the direction of the organization.
1: When you say infrastructure, though, what what it signals to me is I think about um, really the physical engineering
0: kinds of things
1: that. And and when I think of the word infrastructure, I automatically think something that's rigid and stable and not changing.
0: Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, there was there's a lot in what you just said. So let me try to respond to it and and hit a a bunch of those points. Yeah. So. Uh, When I think about infrastructure, um, I think of it as having kind of three pillars. So the technical, physical stuff, um, the uh, governance, which I'll get to in a second, I'll try to unpack that a little bit, and education, um, which is not just me, you know, as an instructor of, uh, you know, civil engineers, but also For example, continuing education on you know on the job education right Uh, education happens in many different places uh, and hopefully for a long time um, throughout a person's career so lots of different ways, but. um, You know the challenge. that, you know, we often think about is um, this rigidity that you're referring to, which I would um, in many ways agree with you exists. Uh, The question is, what does it mean, Um, both in the physical assets as well as, and maybe more so, this is my concern and why I'm uh, really interested in learning more from you, um, around the governance and leadership side of things, right? So, um, you know, we've had some discussion about rigidity of the physicalness of of the systems. And, you know, you could say, you know, yeah, um, you know, we instantiate infrastructure for long periods of time, um, you know, one, because they're remarkably capital intensive, um, that allows us to uh, hedge risk over the life of the asset. But, you know, one, it sort of signals that it's going to be there for a long time. So sure, you can then build other things into it, because, you know, it'll be there, put a put a train line in and you know we know it's not going away anytime soon so we can do density around it right it signals that it's going to be there for a long time but it's not just that right we can all of a sudden put in power lines under the road and water lines and sewer lines and communication lines under the road right it becomes this this um, uh, this really critical right of way right that um, becomes coupled um, to the point that you made earlier so you know that in many ways is good the question is right as things change um you know is that configuration appropriate and um you know can it respond to maybe the changing needs or changing conditions of the world or demand around it right so that's one um but then there's this rigidity and governance which um you know, okay, so what is what is governance, from my perspective, and I think Tisha Munoz-Eriksson who's a governance expert is on, so Tisha, I apologize for what I'm about to, to butcher here, but um, I think of infrastructure governance as this sort of uh, umbrella concept that that uh, includes a lot of the things that you said, but it's the rules, policies, norms, actors that um, are uh, often contextualized within a bureaucracy and within a leadership structure that decide the direction of uh of the organization the system writ large uh what it's going to do why it's going to do it and so on and uh leadership um leadership is certainly a relevant concept when when you think about infrastructure from you know what I'm learning applying your theory and looking at how infrastructure systems work so uh, I'll be careful in in sort of the broad sweeping assay, uh, assessment here, but it um, all signs point to, or many uh, let me rephrase that, many signs point to uh, infrastructure in the United States being configured uh, around what Mintzberg called a divisional bureaucracy. Um, you know this idea that there are there's strategic leadership at the top of the organization there's the chief engineer of the you know Texas DOT right Arizona DOT and the chief engineer with maybe a small board of people uh, are largely responsible for making sense of what is going on in the world as it relates to in this case transportation and steering the massive ship that is the department of transportation to respond to that mm-hmm. Um, And that form of leadership um, appears to have emerged with the railroads in the last century. And it was very much focused on, as you pointed out right away, this concept of efficiency. Uh, Essentially, it looks like Wall Street was largely responsible for configuring railroads in this way, right? Railroads were like a hodgepodge of of different organizations for a long period of time, largely in the Eastern US. And as they consolidated and as they moved west, they needed to become more efficient and they needed to um, be able to more effectively operate on larger scales. And they just weren't configured to do that, right? So Wall Street was like, okay, a bunch of railroads have tried different things, But it looks like this divisional bureaucratic forum, which of course they didn't call it that, seems to be the most effective way of doing it. By the way, you can have all strategic leadership in one place and that makes it remarkably easy to communicate with them and tell them, you know, financially what to do and so on. So um, there's a wonderful series of books that was written um, by a think tank in DC in the uh, early 90s and the the author escapes me. Um, But, the books chronicle how that model of uh of governance or, or leadership, depending on what you want to call it, um, was uh transplanted into the emerging uh infrastructure systems that we largely rely on today. It was translated into water, into telecommunications, into power, and so on. So uh that's um that's generally how I see it. Now, the other thing I'll add to that is um What I also um, would hypothesize is that the way that infrastructure agencies try to deal with um, adaptation or emerging problems and their complexity is by adding more subdivisions into the organization, which, you know, I'd love to hear your your reaction to that, Um, but, doesn't appear to be the way to structurally deal with the emerging complexity of problems like sustainability, resilience, equity, and so on, nor the uh, potential lock-in effects that keep us doing one thing when we may want to be doing something else.
1: Yes. Okay. a lot there. (laughs) Yes. So I'm going to say, in response to that, a couple of things that I take away. And then I really would like to, we can keep talking, but I want to also Um, see if we can engage the group in the the second part of this around this question. So, here's the question I would have for all of you, which is, how can we make infrastructure more flexible? So, you said, well, we have the infrastructure, and then what I wrote down was, it gets us locked in. I think what happens in infrastructure is it locks us in, it's rigid. And the question is, can you gain the benefits of what we get from infrastructure, which is all those things you described, but do it in a way that it's adaptive or flexible? So someone um, actually gave me the example of the buildings that are built for earthquakes. So you wanna still have the foundation of the, the building, But that foundation has to be able to at least engage with the the earthquake. And so a resilient building in an earthquake territory is one that has enough flex or enough adaptability. And I think the challenge is that what's happening in our world now is there's so much adaptation going on that it's a wider range than what we've ever seen before. So what we have seen in our work is that the key to doing this kind of thing, to making th- making organizations, systems, people, for me being adaptive, is I need to have the right combination of the focus on the push for novelty and the innovation, along with the focus on results. And these two things operate in tension. So in classic org theory, they would t- call that the trade-off between efficiency and adaptability. And you're constantly dealing with that trade-off. What they then do is they say you need to balance it but I don't think balance is the right word. It makes it sound like a polarity and you've got to sw- switch between one or the other. And I don't see it as a polarity because a polarity means that you can't be doing one while you're doing the other. I think it's a tension. And so there's a tension that we need to engage and the tension between the need to push for adaptability, but then that stability that keeps us, we, we can't always be adaptive. We can't always be innovating. We need to have enough stability to be able to function and accomplish the things that we need. So that's the core challenge. That's the the issue that we've been finding in our work and the fundamental dynamic, and I can speak more to it. But my question would be, how can you think about infrastructure and develop it in a way that it can be more flexible and more adaptive and not just rigid? And then the second thing I would say is that when you talk about leadership, I would say, no, what you described isn't leadership, it's management. So what was developed along with divisional bureaucracy was not leadership, it was management. They then called it leadership, but it's really not because leadership is this broader concept that I was describing earlier, that it's not just the formal behavior of individuals who are aligning an organization around goals and results. Instead, it's a collective process of people co-creating leadership and followership together so individuals engaging together in a partnership and that partnership is a leading following dynamic of if you're trying to, if we're together, Mike, and you're, we're trying to get somewhere and um, a restaurant and I don't know where we are, um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna follow you and then you lead and I follow. And together we've co-created leadership and followership that get us to the restaurant. But let's say you don't really know what it is, where you went and you we took us to the wrong place, you don't have a phone and I do. And so I say, okay, well now I've got to take it over because I have the phone and I know how to use GPS. So I'll plug that in and now you engage in following with me. It might be that I have trouble seeing how this works on my phone and you you and I together do it. So it's a mutual influence process. So leadership is a much broader concept and, and people will say, well, that's teamwork. And there is an element of teamwork in it. The difference is we define teams as a unit that has a shared goal and then um, there's not really the leadership dynamic, the asymmetrical influence relationship of leading and following. Okay the final point I'll make is adding more subdivisions is a terrible idea. so we can talk about that, but that's just a really terrible idea.
0: So I was uh, when, I, when I was at UCLA last year um, there was a talk by uh, somebody from Los Angeles Metro, one of uh, the third largest transit agency in the country as uh, measured by the amount of service provided. And um, they were talking about the point that we talked about earlier. How do we um, you know, form some sort of symbiotic relationship with Uber and Lyft? So you know, Uber and Lyft is, is going uh, nuts in a good way. And in LA, you know, everybody's taking it. And you know, we're worried that that's going to undermine transit. So their solution was literally to create a uh, subdivision, like a you know, department, I forget what it was called, that was designed to sort of analyze this problem Interact with Uber and Lyft, you know. Try to find sort of strategic uh, direction to um, to be able to address this challenge. And you know that, that was sort of right around the time when I was starting to read uh, your work as well as some of this other work. And you know, I was thinking to myself, um, you know, does that uh, sort of uh, subdivision or departmental sort of addition model um, lend itself to being able to deal with this sort of structural disturbance? right, this sort of uh, major potential major change in the conditions under which transit needs to operate. And uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I do, so let me say this, as soon as you say they create a department or a subdivision, um, that there's potential that that could be okay, but it's what it implies, because creating a department or a subdivision, my guess is they did it in a bureaucratic manner and that's gonna be too slow. So what we talk about today instead of that is more the importance of networks and collaboration. So I think that instead of thinking about creating a department for something, we wanna create more fluid systems. So take the idea of a department, what's the point of that? That's to get an area focused, bring some expertise in, put some goals around it and align people around some results. That's the bureaucratic way of thinking about it. The complex adaptive way of thinking about it would be more of a collaboration and a project. So more of a project task force that implies more fluidity and more dynamism. So a, a, a department could work if it was enacted in a fluid way, but my guess is that it isn't. So the whole thing is about fluidity. And I wanna just differentiate what I mean by collaboration Collaboration actually is a term, when I started looking at it with a a doctoral student, it's a term being used in public sector more and more for these kinds of issues. So it's really arising more in the area that you're working in. And the idea of it is that collaborations are fluid dynamic and they're based on network connections. If you've got something you're working on, you've got a problem you're dealing with, Instead of it being let's put this team and that team and Mike, your team has these people on it and my team has these people on it and we're gonna sit down on these meetings and we have agendas and we're gonna have some goals and we're gonna drive toward them. Um, That is a very, again, static and stable way of thinking about something because those teams typically, when, as you get into the problem, aren't gonna be the right players that you need once the, the problem starts actually being dug into. So, instead of a team and a static unit like that, you have a collaboration with people who are reaching out and initiating relationships and connecting along the way. And the way to think about that is a network dynamic. So, we're operating much more based on networks now and network connections and information flows across the network if you have the agents and the relationships there, you can activate those network relationships when you need them. But then when you, I don't need to be working with you anymore, I need to work with somebody else, I can pivot over to be able to deal with that other person. So again, my problem isn't necessarily the idea of putting a department or subdivision, it's the implication that that's a bureaucratic thing.
0: So let's let's pivot. So the, the topic of uh, complexity leadership theory that you know you you've created, um, and let's dive into that, which I think has uh, a lot of um, really great potential when it comes to you know how we think about infrastructure. So um, you know I think in in if I think I'm remembering correctly in your 2007 paper, there's a line to the effect of um, you know different leadership styles are are um, important but let's get real and, you know, we're not gonna get rid of the uh, systems and processes that we have right now overnight. You know, they're gonna be with us for a long time. So, um, you know, that that line really resonated with me. Uh, so um, complexity leadership theory, you know, I, I, I guess the question is how does that differ from, you know, leadership theory or leadership more broadly? And I would love it if you can get into sort of the, um, the you know, breakdown of complexity leadership theory. So operational, entrepreneurial and uh, enabling leadership.
1: Okay, so the interesting thing about what you teed up there and where you started was when we began this work, so Russ Marion and I were working on it and I described that partnership to you earlier, um, we were struggling and the issue was, we know that we have in nature what's called a complex adaptive system. And that's more like what I described to you, the dynamic evolving organism that's reacting in response to the environment. And then we also know we have bureaucracy. And so we have this fundamental tension of what does that mean? How do we engage those two things together? And that's what the 2007 paper was really digging into is and we'd had pictures in there where we had bureaucratic structures and then we would put our little cast I don't know if you remember those pictures from the paper but we yeah. have an orange yep. structure with the hierarchical um triangle pyramid chart and then we have these little circles of um, pockets of casts or complex adaptive systems and we were really thinking about it that way cast embedded in bureaucracy and then I had a doctoral student who um she's actually from Serbia and I and she I think because of what happened in that country was naturally more of a complexity thinker because she understood that when the world is changing around you and you're dealing with all of these horrible things like war, you need to be adaptive. And so she said, it isn't like this, Mary, it's the whole thing is the complex adaptive system. And so then we really started digging in and we were able to draw a picture of an organization as a complex adaptive system. And that's what what we call the three circle model. So the three circle model starts with the entrepreneurial In the original paper, the names have changed. So I'll give you the new names. So it starts with the circle that's the entrepreneurial. And the story of this is that, and bear with me, this isn't exactly true, but just run with the, the statement I'm gonna make. Let's not argue this, it's not worth it. But all organizations start out entrepreneurial. Okay, so an entrepreneur is somebody who sees an opportunity in the environment, has a new idea, and they're pushing for the idea, and they're creating novelty. Okay, but then as they grow, they have to bring on an operational system, which is also called an administrative system. That's what we called it in the first paper. So the, um, as they grow, they bring on the operational. Now, the operational is what we know as bureaucracy. So that's all the bureaucratic organizing that tries for efficiency and effectiveness. And now we've got the combination of the two. We've got the entrepreneurial with the novelty, the innovation, the new ideas, and we have the operational that brings the efficiency and effectiveness that converts things into results, produces outputs that are critical for the survival of the system. So one without the other isn't gonna work. But what's happened? what happened then was the operational system ended up overpowering the entrepreneurial. In most organizations and business organizations, now I will say infrastructure and governance. Oh, sorry, um, somebody's texting me and it just dinged in, so ignore that. I hope he stops soon. Um, so the infrastructure and the um, the in the operational or infrastructure is different because I think that's where we have to talk about it. They don't necessarily start off entrepreneurial, so that's a question we can ask. Um, given that differentiation, that it doesn't start with novelty or an entrepreneur. Um, how do we inject or get or bring in the entrepreneurial leadership? So that's that's a question I will pose for the group. So then the operational has all the authority and the formal, formal um, power. And these two things, once you bring in the operational, they operate in tension. So there's the people who are pushing for novelty, the entrepreneurs, they wanna keep going with that novelty, they hate if they're a classic entrepreneur, they're going to hate structure. They hate meetings. They hate all that boring bureaucracy stuff. I love the ideas and the energy I get um, that is so motivating for me around the innovation and the novelty. These two things go into tension. And almost always in an informal organization, the bureaucratic is going to win. The operational system is going to win because that's where the authority is embedded and they can overpower the entrepreneurial. So that then sets up this this classic tension of how do we keep these things operating? How do we keep entrepreneurial alive in the face of the operational? And that's where we generated the idea of this middle space, the adaptability, it's the tension. The tension between these two things is the key. And what we found, long story short, in all of our empirical work is that the only way that this tension can work is if we allow it to operate in what we call adaptive space. So when pressures come in from the environment and the tension is injected, people are pushing for novelty. We can't let the operational system shut it down. That's what it does. We call it the order response. The operational system shuts it down, shuts down the entrepreneurial, tries to take the system back to where it was. That's the pullback to equilibrium. And it just gets rid of all the things that you need to be able to generate adaptability, so that that's the basic story. I, I hope that's clear. That middle space is called the enabling leadership, and that's where you create the adaptive space to engage the tension.
0: So, what's that the, is clear. What is um, what is the reason for why operational tends to uh, you know push back on on uh, the entrepreneurial side
1: because that's the nature of what the operational does is first, again, remember they have the power and the authority, but they're also what you would call the infrastructure. They're the rigid infrastructure. So the operational is focused on efficiency and effectiveness. So the pushback they will give, for example, is you'll have entrepreneurial people who, if you let them run crazy, they're gonna ha- come up with all these great ideas and they wanna go do something that has a really cool design. Well, the operational people will say, yeah, but we've got a budget, we've got schedule, um, we have machines that this won't work with. So their pushback is around the structure. It's primarily around the structural element. And that, that structure, if you wanna think about the, the easiest one to think about, it's IT systems. So in organizations, the one that would be most comparable to infrastructure that you talk about, I believe, and you can push back on me, is is information technology it's locked in, it's not easy to change, it's critical, it allows us to produce what we need to produce, but making that flexible and adaptive is not easy.
0: So is, um, you know, in Mintzberg's work, you know, again, going back to like the molecules of the organization, as I call it, right, he had this, um, as you already pointed out, the organic versus mechanistic framing, um, you know, which he might've gotten from somebody else earlier than him, um, but, if I recall correctly, um, he, you know, advocates that during um, periods of complexity or in uh, emerging complexity, uh, the organization should um, tend towards what he called the ad adhocracy, right? Which I think is a terrible term, but, um, you know, in, in his work, it was sort of describing these informal teams that would, come together, you give them the resources they need to come together to deal with problems that the organization wouldn't normally deal with. Yes. Um, do you think about it in, in a similar way or, or differently?
1: So what he's describing is our original thinking in that 2007 paper, that would be those little pictures of the CAS in, in the pyramid. You have the little bubbles of CAS, uh, complex adaptive systems that pop up. That would be his ad hocracy. Um, I think Mintzberg was very prescient and really understood a lot of things, but I think that um, it has evolved beyond that thinking. So I'm I'm not sure the Mintzberg thinking is really beneficial anymore. Sorry, Henry, to say that. I think it's kind of older. And the, the reason is because it was more premised in the idea that in organizations, when you have change, it's a change program. So the old thinking of organizations was we have our organization. Oh, we have a need for change. We're gonna implement a change program. And then once that change program is done, we go back to our order. And that changed in the 90s. So in the 1990s, there, everybody understood that there's no. that's not the way you do change. Change is an ongoing, continuous thing. So mm-hmm. that's where it shifted to more of the living systems kind of perspective that I, I've been telling you about. And now it's shifted to where we understand that our organizations all together have to be living systems. And so they need to completely be set up around this idea of change. So the, the concept of ad hocracy wouldn't work. Um, that it's really how do we how do we implement or enable the adaptive process? I shouldn't shouldn't say implement. How do we enable the adaptive process? So the thinking in our theory now, and I think others are are thinking the same thing is. When you've got a pressure coming in from the organization or from the environment, and this can be internal or external. What needs to happen is that pressure is saying that you need to adapt. So you need to allow the adaptive process to occur. Mm -hmm. And the adaptive process occurs when agents, which is people, ideas, information, resources, technology, activate and in the, in the face of a pressure and they start to generate novelty. So a new way of thinking, operating, they generate what's the, the seed of an adaptive response. And then for that adaptive process to occur, that novelty, that push for novelty has to engage in adaptive space with the push for stability. That push for stability is also critical for survival. We have bodies and systems that operate in certain ways and they have to continue to function. You don't want, you can't do something without that stability. It's essential. So it's the push for novelty, engaging with the push for stability in adaptive space. And we do that through what we call a conflicting and connecting process. So the conflicting is you engage the tension, but in that, you can't stay divided. You have to find some way to find connections. This is the creative abrasion or um, adaptive tension. And this is where in in that conflicting, you can get sparks of novelty. And so the skill, and this is really what I'm starting to teach leadership students is the skill in that is not only how do you engage the conflicting in the right kind of space, adaptive space, but how do you capture the sparks? That's the fun part. The sparks that come off of that tension that then can generate the adaptive outcome. So you have the seed of an adaptive response that comes in, it goes into adaptive space. And if that's done the right way, then it sparks an adaptive outcome that gets formalized through the operational system back into the whole system and comes around in the form of new order.
0: So um, one of the, uh, I think it was Tom Karp, who you might be familiar with. So I read some of his stuff on like change management and um, you know he talks about this idea of uh, you know people in an organization resisting change uh, or you know to put that more constructively, you know how do you set the conditions for people to embrace change in an organization? And I think we lose this perspective often that that an organization is people. Um, and often lots of people, particularly when we're talking about infrastructure. so you know when strategic leadership says, Everybody now will care about sustainability and in everything you do you will have to think about and incorporate sustainability, right? Um, There's this um, Identity issue that is at play where you know, there are possibly many if not most people in an organization that might say I don't care about this or You know, I care about it only as much as I need to to keep my job right Mm -hmm. and you know, that is like a monumental force in, um, you know, in making change happen. Does that fit into uh, the complexity leadership theory?
1: Absolutely. And so this is really the question of resistance and how do we address or understand resistance when we're talking about these kinds of organizations or this kind of leadership. And this is where, again, I will say to you, that is a very, very real thing. And that resistance, it's, there are multiple things. So one is the politics. So I always teach politics with this, because politics are about interests. So when we are talking about politics, the basic thing here is that there are interests that people have and political behavior is motivated by interests. Those are not always good interests. So you have to think about interests. That's the one thing. The other is that a system will stay in stability. It does not like to change. This is not a, a natural thing. And we as people don't necessarily like to change either. This is why it will only work if there is enough pressure that motivates the system to change, that opens up the willingness or the openness for change. And that's why I say you can't do this unless you're faced with true complexity pressures. Yeah, I, I my colleague was thinking that in the beginning of this work, well, we just go inject all these things that introduce complexity in and that'll change it. But it's not true. You have to have a true complexity pressure. What happens with a true complexity pressure is it's defined by an adaptive challenge for which there's no known solution. So adaptive versus technical by new partnerships. So complexity events bring people or agents together that haven't been together before. It's characterized by heterogeneous perspectives or conflicting worldviews. So you've got the conflict embedded. And then the fourth piece is the critical one, which is interdependence. Without this, you won't get it. And the interdependence, it's an old word. We've talked about it forever. It's the least sexy word in our field, but it's probably the most important thing, interdependence. And the interdependence and the complexity pressure means I have to work with you, Mike, and get this done, despite our differences. And despite the fact that I don't want to do that, because if I don't, we're not going to survive. So that's the the pressure that opens the system up. And what that does is when you've got a complexity pressure that comes in, it opens those things. We call that opening adaptive space. So adaptive space necessarily gets opened up. The issue is what do we do with it? what most organizations did in the past is they shut that back down. They would come in with an order response. They would get rid of the tension and they would fix it and just say, oh, we're fine. We've got to fix this. This took us back to stability. We feel really good. So in business organizations, they found they couldn't do that. They tried. And when they would shut it down, go back to order, they'd fix it. It's like a problem solving or crisis management approach. They'd fix it. But if they did that a certain number of times, they couldn't survive because they found themselves out of fit. So um, the difficulty with with government or bureaucratic organizations or ones that don't have that real pressure is they can still survive. So they are designed and the individuals in them will resist. And that's, I think, the key thing that has to change.
0: So that's... um... You know, again, since since you've mentioned this concept to me, like whatever that was a few weeks ago, I've been I've been thinking about it all the time, and um, you know, sort of trying to wrap my head around it when it comes to infrastructure. So, you know, the fundamental question, um, you know, do infrastructure organizations, are, you know, are they threatened with death, um, you know, or, or you know, the possibility that they would be supplanted by somebody else? And I think there are some examples where I can say, yeah. There are the potential for um, disruptive actors to come in, and and we've used these examples uh, yesterday. But you know, for example, Uber and Lyft, right? So like, um, your son, my you know, my kids, right? Like, you know, I, I actually I, I teach a transportation systems planning class to seniors that are, you know, around twenty two years old, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we got to the module where we're talking about um, you know, Uber and Lyft, car sharing, sharing economy, and so on, and I. It occurred to me, and I asked them this question, are, are any of you, you know, around the age of 22, yes, there are some older ones, but did any of you grow up in your formative transportation years? Like when us old people will talk about getting a driver's license and how that meant freedom, you know, getting your parents' car, right? But to them, it's wildly different, right? So did any of you guys grow up in a world where Uber and Lyft were not major players at a time, you know, when you were becoming teenagers and wanted to go see your friends that you know you couldn't access it. And the answer is no, right? Like their mentality around this service, which is not quite the infrastructure, right? it's it's the use of the infrastructure, but um, you know, their mentality around this service that is mobility and accessibility, um, is very, very different, right, than um, anybody who is older than them. So, you know, there are infrastructure where I say, you know, the the possibility of disruption or or emerging and disruptive technologies, um, for example, water systems, uh, water distribution systems or sewer systems, right? Talk about about not sexy, right? Uh, Sewage. You know, it's hard to say, you know, if they don't become sustainable or you know resilient they won't survive and something will come into their place right i can think about like from our work like climate extreme events like if climate change gets worse and extreme events keep uh reducing the reliability of these systems um will something else come in that's more reliable that you know basically supplants that system and i'm hard pressed to to say yes um you know certainly that is the case but with other systems again like mobility um, you know, I could see Google or Apple or Uber and Lyft coming in and basically doing things differently. Amazon, even right with drone delivery, doing things differently, that um, to me represents um, not simply the death of the existing uh, infrastructure, and I don't mean the f- simply the physicality of it, um, but more so the uh, disruption that is new players coming into what was traditionally a single uh supplier and um consumer market right where new players come in that are able to control the system and control services in ways that that uh public service was never intended to operate in so uh you know it's it's uh i think it's a really interesting question to think about
1: I think in that example, the interesting thing, there are a couple of interesting things and then I wanna to sidetrack to another um, another thought that came to me. So public service, the difference is, so let's take an Uber and a Lyft. They have to, to be able to make profit. So they have to keep the system operating in such a way that they keep the, the their organization alive. And we see that they get threatened. If you look at public transportation, they don't have that. They often operate based on an inefficient model that is supplemented by the government, right? So that's where you have government or others that are, that are coming in and they're propping it up, an inefficient system. And I think that's part of the challenge that we have. So that's the difference between when people say, well, let's privatize something. When they're saying we wanna privatize, what they're trying to do is get at the efficiency and the effectiveness again. They want it to operate like a business and that it's efficient and not losing money. But you do, there's a trade-off there when you privatize that there are people who will lose in that. And the big problem we have in privatization right now that I think is going on and others can push back or get, this can be controversial in business school. A lot of what we find now with our capitalistic models is it's benefiting few. It's it's the the winners in this are ending up being a few players and not the broader system overall. So there it feels a little bit rigged right now, and it's played out in such a way. And there are a lot of reasons that that's happening. Um, so that's the other reason that people would say we still need to have governance and and public sector on these things because. there will be people who will lose and we have to supplement and use our tax money to as the revenue for that. But that creates a different model in terms of efficiency. And then I'm gonna say one other thing about resistance, just to throw it in there. Um, I'm seeing this in business organizations, but I think it's probably also happening in the public sector on the resistance of the players. So let's look at the people, the human element of it. And one of the big problems we have is that there are people who are older in the system who are running things, okay? And what they're doing is they're looking at it and they're saying, oh yeah, we see the changes there. We see it's coming, but it's not gonna affect me because I have a window. I refer to it as the window. I have a window and my window is I'm gonna retire and I have six, seven, eight, ten 10 years And I'm gonna sit here and I I don't need to do all this stuff. You guys can talk about it, you young people, whatever. I'm not gonna focus on that because I'm gonna keep this in place and ride it out until I'm gone. And the problem with that is yes, they can do that and they have the the power to do it. But the system itself is suffering terribly from that.
0: I had a uh, professor in grad school that uh, used the acronym NIMTU, not in my term of office to talk about it. Infrastructure leadership. Um, you know, uh, if if my you know if the the head of the you know Texas DOT tells me I need to do something and I'm a division head, um, I'll do it. You know, to a minimum if I if I am not totally on board, right? But um, you know, NIMTO is a major guiding force, and you know how I think about how aggressive I am in doing something.
1: It's a huge problem, a huge problem. It's an underlooked one. I think we need to talk about it more, not in this in this conversation today, but in general. And the thing about it is the reason that NIM2 has gotten harder is because these people, what, what is needed to change is so far beyond their thinking and their brains, they can't do it. So it's an existential threat for them. They, if they allow this change to occur, they can't really be the ones doing it. So think about the congressmen that were sitting when Zuckerberg and others came in to testify in Congress, Congress, and they had not even the basics of understanding how social media work. They've never done it. So this has been, it, the world has changed so much that these people feel, and they are, obsolete. And so then they're gonna protect themselves by hiding their obsolescence by keeping the system where it is, which is not benefiting anyone.
0: Yeah, which goes back to that identity issue, which which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of, um, you know, Mary, a lot of your work, a lot of the work around your work that I've read, uh, you know, gets me thinking about, um, I don't want to say communication, that's not quite it, but like my strategy for how I advocate or recommend that infrastructure organizations change. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I think there was, um, you know, from from my own perspective, I would describe a, a naivete to, you know, how it, I was approaching change before it, um, just sort of, you know, making the argument that, you know, for example, if you don't adapt to climate change, your systems will be disrupted more and more. And, you know, that's a big problem, you know, so somebody's going to get fired. Um, The reinsurance industry is going to come after you because they're not getting paid, you know, however you want to think about it. But um, there's, I think, a much more pointed set of recommendations that we as infrastructure people could be making that leverages your work as well as the work of of those around you around what it means internally to drive change from a lot of these um, dynamics characteristics that we in the infrastructure community are often um not aware of I, i'll say it from the engineering community we're definitely not aware of them um, there's probably other folks in this phone that are sort of broader infrastructure people that are aware of a, a lot of them but um you know it's got me thinking again of, of how we affect change um you know I, I'll, I'll also bring up this story that um in uh november of uh 2018 which feels like a lifetime ago at this point. I ran an in-person conference. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Um, That uh, was about infrastructure sustainability. A lot of the attendees here were part of it. And uh, the keynote speaker, uh, this was in LA. the keynote speaker was uh, Jared Diamond. Um, and uh, many folks here probably know Jared Diamond, who wrote a book called Collapse. He's written a, written a number of other books. But it's important to think about the context here, which, which uh, you know, I I wasn't fully grasping um, when I was listening to him talk. And I read his book, right, 10 years ago. So Jared Diamond, for those who don't know, wrote, wrote this book called Collapse that describes, um, you know, permit me a little leeway here, folks, uh, how... Uh, there is a, a rich history of civilizations many, you know, a thousand years ago or so that have exhausted their environments. Uh, they basically just exploited their environments to the point where they collapse. Um, you know, everybody dies or, you know, everybody just sort of migrates into different directions and that society that was there is no longer there. So it was sort of a narrative that I took when I first read it and, for, and, and sort of held onto it for about 10 years around how you know, if we are not careful with the environment that we have, um, you know, our societies could collapse. And I, you know, I still believe that in, in, um, you know, the most, uh, in a meta sense. But um, I, you know, in that 10 years, sort of read the work of um, uh, Joseph Tainter on how um, societies themselves become uh, so complex. That they collapse. There's the works of Max Weber that talks about how bureaucracies become so complex that you know the institutions can collapse. Um, you know, there's the the work of uh, Sam Arbusman uh, or the book by Sam Arveson called Overcomplicated. It talks about how infrastructure technologies uh, become so complex that they become problematic. So there was like this series of books out there or, or narratives around emerging complexity that leads to collapse. So I went. Uh, back to ASU, and I was uh, talking to my colleague and many of our colleagues here, Chuck Redman, who's an anthropologist, just like Jared Diamond is, and they know each other. And, you know, I was uh, talking about this to Chuck, and I said, you know, from a, as an engineer, from an infrastructure perspective, you know, collapse is unacceptable. Like, we do not allow it. Um, you know, we are trained uh, to identify the many ways in which an infrastructure could collapse. Um, you know, we we come up with you know, the mechanisms of failure, we identify the, you know, top two, three, four, and we design against that. Um, You know, we have training in how to prioritize against collapse. Um, And, you know, he said, you know, of course you think that way. Uh, You know, you're an engineer. That's how we, that's how, you know, you're trained. That's how you're taught to think. But, you know, from an anthropology perspective, collapse is natural. And this is not me saying that we should allow our infrastructure to collapse and people to die and all. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. But Uh, I'm just bringing up that sort of differences in perspective and the significance of that in, you know, sort of how we think about, um, you know, if collapse is not an option, then what does that mean for adaptation, right, Given, given what you're saying?
1: So it's interesting. I happened to come across that book. There was an article about it. I don't, I read a lot of media, so I'm not sure where I read it, but there was an article about it describing exactly what you were talking about. And so I was—I made a note to myself to look at it because I think it's an interesting um, avenue for me to explore relative to the complexity work. But my thought—and it came up in the article—my thought is exactly what your end point was, which is we view that when a society collapses, it's a failure. So, and if we look back and we say, "Well, we had this civilization and it failed, it died," but somebody either in the article or in the comments to the article said yeah but that actually just morphed into something else so you want to say it collapsed or it died but it just transitioned to something else and it's still there it's just not in that same form so i want to say that we need to think about that the morph and the transition so and we need to think about how we view failure i i for many years did um leadership workshops for the episcopal bishops so If you want to find an organization that's challenged, it's religious organizations that are struggling with the changes that are happening in society around this. And so the example they'll bring up is a church, and they'll talk about a church that they need to close. It's a challenging issue for the bishops. And I said to them, Yes, I get it. I get that your parishioners are unhappy, but it's not a failure. That church served its purpose. It did what it was supposed to do. Now it's morphing or transitioning into the next stage or next element. And I had the same thing with my colleague, Sonia Ospina. She had an institute. She was studying social change and they set out to, sit to identify some goals. And she told me a few years ago that they were shutting it down. And she said, I just don't know how to feel about this. There are parts of me that feel like a failure. And I said, Sonia, it's not a failure at all. You set out to have a goal. You started an institute. You accomplished your goals. What's wrong with shutting an institute down? That's not a failure. So she said, oh my gosh, I didn't think like that. So we in bureaucracy and in a lot of our ways of thinking about institutions or structures think that once we put it in, it's got to stay. And that's not the case. So something shutting down or closing or morphing or dying is not necessarily a failure if it served the purpose. You know, People die, so we add our life and, and we die. So that's the one thing I would say about that. I, I think you landed in the right spot on it. Um, it is important that we think more about that, the morphing and the transition, but also the language issue you bring up. So I spent a lot of time working with the leadership students or in leadership workshops on language and around communication. And when you were describing how you were speaking to people about climate change or other kinds of issues, it reminded me of polarity management. So this is, um, Barry Johnson has a book and it's called, I think I have a t- I had it on my desk, it's probably at work, polarity management. So it's polarities and how you manage them. And when Barry was doing a workshop, he was paired up with me as I was doing the complexity work. And what he said is we have these things that are poles. So um, centralization and decentralization would be a polarity. They're like opposite ends and seemingly incommensurable. And so I'm a person who would argue for, let's take bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, no bureaucracy. Let's just say that's a poll. So in me trying to say that we've got problems with bureaucracy, you have people who like bureaucracy, they're at the top, the plus side of the poll. What I then do is I try to argue, but look at all the problems with bureaucracy. So we need to go here to complexity. But what Barry says is, don't go there. Don't go to the negative of the poll because as soon as you go to the negative of the poll, you're questioning their identity, everything they know. It's a threat. It's a threat conversation, which is what you were describing. The way that that you all have been communicating or you've been communicating gets to the threat. It triggers the threat response. If you trigger a threat response, it's gonna be fight or flight. That's what people are gonna do. They're not gonna listen or they're gonna fight you. So instead he says, you've gotta go to the top side of your poll. So the way for me to argue my complexity work is not to put down bureaucracy, but to show the benefits of complexity and then show how you can link to it and try to to get at the the positive sides of each poll rather than going to negatives. And that is where we get to language, messaging, communication, um, the way that I'm bringing in a lot of negotiation work now for the interest part to talk about win-win so we really need to frame things up in terms of win-win. We need to frame our pitches that we're making for something more. Instead of me telling you, you need to do this, I would do inquiry and I would ask you a lot of questions to figure out where you are. And then I would figure out how I can link up what I've got with what you've got. So that that's a lot of the leadership work around this.
0: Yeah, there's uh, I wrote a paper on that uh, partially touched on consensus building. Um, as sort of the mechanism um, that you need to negotiate in an increasingly complex environment. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, so you know I think that that's uh that is one of the competencies that I often describe that our future infrastructure leaders are going to need. Um building consensus is is likely going to become more difficult um partly because the environment is more complex but also partly because and this is part of that complexity people are increasingly coming to the dialogue with information and misinformation that's right? right and um you know we can't be naive and pretend like that doesn't exist
1: and you have to remember that there are political interests motivating that so it's not just about convincing somebody on a rational level that's it, that's not really where we are it's not that kind of reasoning there are people with motives, and I don't mean just politicians, there are people with motives that are creating information environments where they're intentionally putting out disinformation and locking against the other and creating polarities on purpose. So if we look at the the politics of it, um, if we look at the Black Lives Matter movement that happened, the social justice movement this summer, it was starting to gain traction. And so what happened? The interest that wanted to stop that because they wanted to hold on to a certain party view is they looked for language in that that they could go to the negative of the polarity, the threat. So they pick up on that language that's threatening and then they argue it to keep it in the polarity. They don't want to have a real conversation about the other side. They want to keep the polarity there because it serves their interest. So
0: awesome. keep that in mind. Excellent. Thank you. So, Mary, last question for you. Um, You've recommended a number of uh, books or or, uh, resources. Is there one um, book in particular or reading in particular outside of your own, of course, that you would um, recommend to the group here?
1: Oh, gosh, I haven't been thinking on that level, Mike, so I'm not quite sure. Um, I I think the polarity management is a good one. Barry has some new stuff. He's been working on a new book. I don't know if it's out yet. Um, But I would look up Barry Johnson and J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and he's got a website as well, because I think polarity, you're dealing with a lot of polarities in the language, the communication, and then I think maybe something that would really help you understand the, the politics, the political aspect of what you're dealing with, because I'm not sure that you're taking that into consideration quite as much the political and the interests, and then how do we actually communicate across those differences and the issue of power, politics, and communication.
0: Yep. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, uh, a suggestion that I have, I see uh, Cliff Davidson posted an MIT, uh, MIT Sloan Management Review article. Uh, Sloan uh, Management Review and the Harvard Business Review I find to be particularly helpful to wrap my head around some of the topics, Mary, that you've been discussing. So there's a lot of content there that goes back 40 years ago. That's actually where I found the Mintzberg stuff to start. An article of his from like 78, 79, but it's all very consumable. Obviously they go through a rigorous editorial process to make sure it's consumable for the masses. Um, And a lot of it has to do with management uh, under conditions of complexity. They may not use those terms precisely, but that's essentially what they're talking about. And, you know, there's probably 20 years of articles there on those topics. So for the uh, engineers in the room, um, you know, maybe check that out every once in a while.
1: And Mike, you can also, on that note, get a newsletter from McKinsey. So McKinsey, the consulting company, they have all kinds of newsletters and they're writing a lot about this right now. So that that's another one. You can get a free newsletter in your inbox and it will just come in and you can read the articles.
0: Great suggestion. So with that, Mary, uh, I'd like to give people a little bit of a breathing room between their next 10 Zoom meetings. So uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, I'm getting lots of messages on my phone and privately in chat saying, this is awesome. We need to talk to her some more. So. Uh, you might get some follow-ups. Um, but thank you again. I really appreciate the time here and your perspectives. It
1: was great being here. And thanks for letting me enter a different area. I really, I always learn. So this is fantastic.
0: Glad to have your perspective alright bye bye All right. Bye-bye, y'all. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX, as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.